Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox, and I'm going to get right into today's guest segment, a talented Canadian author. Joining me today is Michael Dechter, a Harvard University grad who was awarded the Queen's Jubilee Medal in 2017 and the Order of Canada in 2004. He has written three nonfiction books on healthcare, three on investment, a memoir, and Tales from the Back Room, a collection of political stories. Dechter has also written about health and healthcare in the Literary Review of Canada, contributed op-ed pieces to the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail, and for several years he wrote a column for Osprey Media. Born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Dechter now lives in Toronto, Ontario, and he is a dual citizen of Canada and Ireland. Shadow Life is his first novel. So welcome, Michael, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Kathleen. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about your debut novel. So this was published back in the fall, Shadow Life. It opens with a situation that I'm sure none of us ever want to be in, um, but I'm sure it also probably happens all the time. So can you give our listeners an overview of the premise and tell us where the inspiration came from for this novel. Well, the the inspiration for the opening of the novel was uh, a a trial. And I was literally uh, on a jury for a double murder trial four years ago um, and ended up as foreman of the jury. Now, you can't talk about what goes on on a jury. Uh, It's a criminal code bar. So I altered the nature of the trial. I left it as a murder trial, but in the one I was actually foreman on, we did reach a verdict um, and convicted one of the two accused of of, uh, two counts of murder. Um, It was a remarkable and very challenging four months, and I still have occasional nightmares about it. But before I went on the jury um, and and the trial, I'd written most of the novel. Um, but I didn't have a way of starting it. So I had, the original start had been the main character uh, was working at Toronto City Hall and there was the leasing scandal. And although he wasn't involved in the leasing scandal, he felt honored but bound to resign out of a sense of honor that this had happened on his watch and that he should have somehow known and stopped it. But then um, Rob Ford became mayor and Donald Trump became president. And I realized that it it really wasn't credible that a main character would unravel his life because he felt that he should take responsibility. We seem to be in an age where a lot of people in public life don't take responsibility, do everything but. So the the, the novel sat, it had a a good ending and uh, a lot of the main themes and characters, but it didn't have a start. And then after the the jury trial, I was actually talking to someone, a a, a psychiatrist who was sitting next to me on a a health advisory board. She said, you know, I I hear you were on a trial and we talked about it. And she said, you know, writing about it might be therapeutic. And And the penny dropped. And I thought, I actually have something that really could knock someone off their moorings in a, in a, in a real way. I, I don't have to invent it. I have to alter it a bit. But so the, the, the jury trial was one of the more powerful events of my adult life. I'd been driving downtown to work for 25 or 30 years, driving right by that courthouse on University Avenue. I'd never given a thought to what went on inside it. And then for four months of my life, 
I was right in, I was there every day, completely emotionally engaged with the trial. And, you know, there was some lasting trauma from it, um, not debilitating, but certainly uh, no shortage of uh, nightmares from time to time. It did help me kind of put the thing at a distance. Yeah, it's great that it has that power to to give us that sense of, of release, I guess, in a yes. way. It's kind and, of, you know, they say, writing is therapy. And, and the sweep of the book, the, the, the larger narrative of it, really, I, I, it had started in the year I turned uh, 50. And uh, I, I got curious about the year of my birth, 1952. So the original work on the book was me doing from my cottage on Georgian Bay. So that part's real. I do have a cottage on Quarry Island and have had for 23 years. So I started doing deep dives into night, what went on in 1952. And I, I was thinking of one of those books, I think a couple of Americans have written those like one-year books about you know what happened. But you know, it 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 was there was a lot that had happened, but I didn't want to just write a book about 1952 because it wouldn't be fiction. And after sort of moving from nonfiction to storytelling to a memoir of my father, I'd sort of crossed the line into, you know, that desire to make up stories. And I, I had the naive view that fiction would be easier, that because <laughs> you could just make stuff up. But yeah. it turns out it's way harder. When you, when you write a nonfiction book and you go through the edit, the real question they want to ask all the time is, can you prove this? Is this a fact? Where did this come from? Footnote it, or if you don't footnote it, convince us that the numbers you're using, the ideas you're putting out there have substance and, and uh, are defensible. Mm-hmm. When you get to fiction, you sort of think, well, I can make this up. I can take part of my lived experience and I can add things to it. I can exaggerate some of it. I can invent some stuff. But, but then you get into an editing process and the questions are character development, um, the arc of the narrative, which I joked about for a long time until I figured out how important it was. Pacing came late in the game when my editor took a big chunk out of the final part of the book that I really liked, that I thought was some of the best writing. I, I asked him about it. I said, I thought that was really good. He said, it's terrific. But when you get towards the end of a book, a novel, things have to speed up. And so you were treading water when you needed to be speeding up. So I learned an, a, a great deal in the process. Um, but the inspiration really came from being a, you know, a 50-year-old and then a 60-year-old and thinking about roads not traveled and thinking about, and particularly my mother died relatively young, well, really quite young at 61. And she had a twin sister, my aunt, who lived in Dublin. My mother was Irish. Um, And I reconnected with my aunt and I started going fairly often to Dublin and sort of learning the family history and learning that many of the stories my mother had told that sounded fanciful uh, were actually true. They were, you know, she would say things like, oh, the Irish Civil War started when Cousin Ginger was kidnapped, and then it turned out when I Googled it that the Irish Civil War started when someone named Ginger O'Connell was kidnapped, and he turned out to be my mother's cousin. So there were these moments of of kind of revelation 
and an increasing connection to Dublin and Ireland and the Irish family. And uh, sadly, my aunt uh, passed away. Aunt Kate died at age 93 of COVID. Oh, but she had, uh, she and my mother weren't identical twins, but they had the same voice. Mm -hmm. So if I was with Aunt Kay in Dublin and I closed my eyes, the voice was, was it was like my mother had come back after, yeah. after uh -huh. several decades. So that all wove its way into uh, the book. Yeah. Um, and as writers, we talk about writing what we know, um, the emotions that we've experienced, the places we've been, different different things that, that shape us. Um, and of course, writing what we know, that changes as we learn and grow. So one of the themes in this novel, it, it delves into about finding oneself um, and how the past shapes who we've become. So how did your experiences and knowledge help shape that? You were just talking kind of about um, you know, learning about your your family's past that you didn't yes. know. Yes. Yeah. Well, clear, clearly uh, there were some threads. The the uh, my upbringing in in Winnipeg and um, the passion my parents both had. My father come from you know great poverty, but uh, became a surgeon, and and my mother was a social activist and driven by the things she left Ireland to get away from, the dominance of the church, the grinding poverty. Uh, she didn't herself come from grinding poverty, but she was certainly aware of it and, and influenced by it. And they were both great storytellers. So I think the real root of this, I was the oldest of six, many of those things are in the book, but the real influence of my parents was they were both terrific readers and they were both great storytellers, but from very different traditions. My father was from a, a, you know, an immigrant family that had been driven out of uh, two of the cities that had been under attack in, in the Ukraine, uh, Venitsa and uh, Odessa. Okay. His parents were from those cities, and they'd come to Canada to start a new life. And uh, my father was born in 1918 um, on Christmas Day. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in a Jewish household. So the stories were Yiddish stories. They were often featuring, you know, the, the, the trials, the, the challenges of moving from Europe to Canada. The, 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 one of the great family stories, they're notoriously impatient. My family are not given to waiting. So they arrived in London and they were booked on the Titanic to come to, to North America, wow. but they had to wait for three or four weeks. And this didn't sit well with them. So they canceled the Titanic and took another sh a smaller ship. And wow. that's the only reason any of us are alive because yeah. they, they were in steerage. They wouldn't have survived. My mother, on the other hand, had that gentle kind of Irish uh, skill of telling a story and you couldn't quite tell whether it was, true and a bit exaggerated, or she loved the word chancer. I remember as a child saying to her, what's a chancer? She said, well, it's someone who would take a chance with the truth. And I said, well, that would be a liar. She, oh, that's far too harsh a word, chancer. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it, it is in the Irish tradition to have, you know, to tell tales that are true, but, but somewhat exaggerated. So, yeah, so I, I think that desire to tell stories, um, the book Tales from the Back Room, which you were kind enough to mention, was really stories from the couple of decades I spent in government, an attempt to 
show people that government can be humorous at times and, and that there can be, you know, um, some really interesting uh, stories that come from working on behalf of the public. Um, uh, not in the sense of in any way making fun of it, but just the ironic and humorous things like ending up getting the, the hotel room at the Chateau Laurier as a very young member of a delegation that had was clearly for the premier. It was a big suite, but I was too naive to know this until I went down to breakfast the next morning. Premier said they put me in some tiny little room. I don't know what's going on. And I thought, my God, I should have figured this out last night. Too late to tell now. So I spent a couple of days keeping anyone from visiting my room and discovering. <laughs> I hope he's not listening because I don't think I ever actually confessed. But oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, so there were stories like that, and then the novel was really an extension. It, it was taking um, some stories that I knew, some that I wanted to know more about. I made several trips to Ireland, and I did um, um, tour the the Irish Parliament and the National Library, and. Uh, with the help of one of my cousins, really explored a lot of uh, what had gone on. That was helpful in, in the story. Yeah. Well, there's um, a couple of other international locations that are brought up in the book and visited. Did you also visit those places? I, I had visited Australia uh, three times during the health part of my career to give speeches on health care. And uh, there was actually a, a, a podger that I had become friendly with. I mean, there were two streams to that. One, my, my parents actually had a best friend in London um, when they first met, who was Australian. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, but I, I never knew his name. And then um, Andrew Podger and I worked closely together on health. In fact, we launched when I was Deputy Minister of Health in Ontario, and he was Deputy Minister of Health for Australia, we launched a bit of a joint uh, criticism of the WHO for some study that we thought was unfairly slanted to um, European countries. But so I, you know, I borrowed bits. Certainly, um, I didn't write about anywhere that I hadn't actually been. And I did spend four years as a student in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So there was no. Um, professor of, of Irish studies. There yeah. was one, my model was a bit of a, a fellow who was a, a very um, well-beloved professor of French literature and civilization who would take students on tours of France every summer. And uh, okay. I, I didn't do one of the tours, but I was sort of aware of how someone could build a program around you know, their love of a particular country. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Just talking about um, the references to to the setting here in Canada. So driving up the 400, Port Severn, Georgian Bay, Quarry Island, Honey Harbor, all of these places, um, not knowing if it's still called Highway 69 versus 400, same. <laughs> I have it it sort of changes somewhere just north of Barrie, but yeah. it's never clear where. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I've spent lots of time up uh, north of Perry Sound. Um, I used to go camping there with my with my family and my mom's side of the family grew up camping there as well. Um, and now I have a, a, a little cottage that I go to um, in the Perry Sound area too. So I'm always up there in the summers. I absolutely love it. 
So you had mentioned that you you've you've had a a cottage out there for 23 years. So obviously that had a huge influence on your writing this book. It did. And and a, a good friend of mine, someone who was deputy minister of health, some maybe a decade or two after I was, has a place farther up the bay. And he read the book and he said something that I hadn't thought about. He said, you actually made Georgian Bay a character in the novel. Yeah. Storms and all of that. And, and it's true if you're, if you're there, over the years, you you have a, a, a far more vivid sense of weather and wind and waves and boats do break away. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the power of a storm on Georgian Bay is it's not quite the ocean, but it, it they can be quite violent. And um, you come to have a respect for them. You, you don't, uh, you know, you can't leave Quarry Island at night. Um, yeah. There's too many reefs. And I do have a 24-foot limestone, which is a okay. boat for the lake. I, it's an old one. I bought it from the OPP to run it for oh. a year. I bought it used, but it's very uh, it, very enduring. It's a very strong boat. Um, and, yeah, and, and the publisher, I have to give them credit, the, the cover photo looks very much like Georgian Bay. Certainly the clouds do. Quarry Island has a, has a vertical elevation of only 15 feet. So that the island on the cover is a little taller than that. But, <laughs> but um, and, and I was enormously aided by uh, having Anna Porter, who um, had been a writer, publisher, and uh, as a neighbor. So she, uh, she, when I first started working on the book and talking to her about it, I said, would you read a bit of it and see if I actually can write? And she said, it's the wrong question. She said, the question is, will you ever find enough time to write? And I thought that was a bad answer. I had the idea that you were either a writer and could write or you weren't and you were never going to get there. But when I finally finished it, I realized that I'd found the time to finish the novel because largely because of COVID. I was I had a very busy life in addition to running a an investment business. I was on half a dozen boards and chancellor of a university. All of these things caused me to travel. And then COVID hit and suddenly all I was doing was Zoom calls. And so instead of two days in Moncton, I would have, you know, four hours on a Zoom call and then I'd have a lot of time to write. And I got in the habit of using that time to write and the book gradually emerged and, uh, I was I was very grateful for all the people that uh, that helped, and I've, yeah. I've been very nervous about Margaret Atwood finding out that later in life I wrote a novel because she's famous for uh, having had an exchange with a retiring doctor who said he was going to write a novel when he retired, and her <laughs> response was, "And when I retire, I'm going to become a surgeon." Good. Very very Margaret Atwood, but I I screwed up my courage recently and sent her a copy of the book. Because actually the, the room in which I was writing, it had a, a big uh, Charlie Pactor print of Margaret Atwood bringing flowers. And I said, you know, I, I felt as I toiled on the book that every time I looked up, you were bringing me flowers, which I took as encouragement to keep oh, writing. So, yeah. yeah. And so one of the things that Matt does, Matt's the main character, of course, when he's at his cottage is he starts stockpiling things just in case, you know, in the event that some crazy apocalyptic thing happens. And I think this is probably a lot more common than maybe most people realize. I think it's probably pretty common. So if you were preparing for a disaster of some sort, what would you be stockpiling? 
Well, a generator and fuel because you, you need electricity. You don't need a lot of it because you know, the cottage has a big fireplace. So you don't need it for heat, but you do need it for a lot of things. Uh, and, you know, I, I, my role model in this is a, a woman who's a great friend who lived out on the Sunshine Coast. Her husband was a millwright in, in the pulp mill and they would go out on strike a lot and she had five kids. So one day I opened a cupboard and there were, I don't know, 150 cans of tomato sauce and tomato soup. And I said, what's all of this? She said, this is for the strike. I, 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 <laughs> and so when I was writing the book, I thought, what would Joanne stockpile for a strike? Because so you'd need drinking water. You'd need, I mean, I put scotch. I'm not actually as avid a scotch drinker as the book would imply, but um, Matthew liked his scotch, and there there are a lot of you know things that you might not immediately think about. But again, COVID was very helpful. You don't want to be running out of toilet paper if you're a survivalist, or you know, towels, or you know, many many other things, and particularly not books uh, and, and games. So you know, I didn't go fully down the the survivalist. Uh, rabbit hole, but I went far enough in my mind to think about it. Now it was framed up. You can't really easily get to Glory Island in the winter. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, when, when the lake is solid, you could snowmobile over, but there's a big shoulder season, spring and fall, when it's just too rough and unpleasant to get over and there's ice. And so I, I did think about what it would be like to spend a year on the island. And one of the neighbors did spend a year on the island. He okay. stayed through the whole cycle. And, um, uh, you know, I thought, well, that would be, it'd be interesting. But ultimately, I probably like, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a variety of city things too much to yeah. <laughs> really do that. But, you know, there's times in, in, uh, uh, recent world events where you think, you know, maybe uh, knowing how to be a survivalist and is not the worst investment of time. Um, and uh, I, you know, I don't think I would ever do that, but I, I know how that, you know, that feeling of the city becoming more dangerous, uh, more violent, um, you know, if you, you know, you, you amplify that a bit, you could certainly see yourself wanting somewhere um, more secure. Right. Um, and um, so the, the book is certainly not an advocacy, um, particularly the way it concludes to run away from the world. Right. But, but it tries to explore that, that uh, kind of feeling that I think all people have from time to time and mm -hmm. some people act on. And just getting into your, the nonfiction, um, so you, well, basically you've written several nonfiction titles. So you mentioned COVID. So of course you had the time to do it, but was there, was there anything else that kind of made you pivot? Like, what was the reason you decided I want to write fiction now instead of nonfiction? Well, all of the nonfiction books had an element of storytelling. So my, my one and only bestseller was a book called Million Dollar Strategy, which was about how I'd managed to grow my $50,000 RSP into a million dollar RSP over 10 years. But it was really entirely storytelling about the companies I invested in and, and who influenced me. 
So I think the impulse to tell stories was always pretty present in, in what I wrote. Um, and then the idea of telling a, you know, a, a, a novel length story began to have real appeal to me. Um, and I thought if I don't do it now, I mean, I, uh, I probably will, will not do it because when will I have the time and still have my wits about me and, and still have the energy to, to do it. Now, of course, I've written one. I, I, I'm setting myself up for a couple more, but um, um, because I got, you know, you get to a point with characters where you want to see where they'll go next and what they'll do. Yeah. You know, I think it was, you know, I, I grew up with my parents, in addition to being storytellers, were both readers. And my favorite place growing up was the Cornish Library in Winnipeg, where the librarian befriended me and would, would let me sort of just take as many books home as I could carry. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I spent a lot of my youth just wildly reading through various authors and genres. So the more you read, the more you, I think, are inclined to think, well, maybe I should try my hand at this. Um, and what have you found most different and enjoyable or challenging writing fiction versus nonfiction and, and vice versa? Challenging has certainly been uh, the character development um, because to the extent you write about people in nonfiction, they're real people and you, you just write about them. I, I certainly borrowed a, a good deal from real people in shadow life. And in some cases, the disguise wasn't you know, terribly elaborate. In fact, at the launch party, Anna Porter came over to me and said, because I, I have a character named uh, Harris in the, in the novel, a lawyer, and very much modeled on Julian Porter. And she said, I suppose you know that Julian's middle name is Harris. And I went pale. And I said, <laughs> I had no idea. She said, not much of a disguise then. So um, there was a kind of element of wanting to, you know, see, you know, what you could do with a fictionalized version of, of sort of partly your own life. I sort of thought about that old uh, wedding ad, you know, just saying about something borrowed, something, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Mm -hmm. and, and there is a part of that about the novel. You, you, some of it's completely invented. Some of it is a small modification of real people, but hopefully a large enough modification that they don't hire uh, Julian Porter to sue you for libel. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, it, I guess the impulse was most of my really favorite books are uh, fiction or novels by particular authors that I really, really love. I just had a joyous read of all John, John Le Carre's letters. There's a, about a 700-page volume of them, and, mm -hmm. uh, and he's a writer I, I greatly admired. Um, and... Uh, so th there was part of wanting to, in a sense, test my, you know, kind of skills against the masters and see if I could write something that was readable and, uh, um, and interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've been reading uh, uh, Stephen Marsh's very powerful chapbook, which is 50 pages on writing and failure, which is hilarious, but also too true to be anything other than painful. And, uh, you know, you, you sort of realize um, 
I'm if I get an, an email every three or four days from someone who read the novel and, and liked it or loved it, that's all I need. That's <laughs> I, you realize that you don't need much. You don't need, although I was on the bestseller list in my hometown of Winnipeg for two weeks at number three. So that, uh, that was thrilling. Um, yeah. had a great launch out there, but yeah, part of it is just, you know, can I write something that I would, would enjoy reading if, mm-hmm. you know, if I were a strange, if I hadn't written it, I mean, it's harder if you've written it, but, um, and yeah, I, I actually got to like, uh, most of my writing is early morning. So getting up, early on a Saturday or Sunday morning and spending a couple of hours writing. And I found that I could edit later in the day. And mm-hmm. I, I particularly, I went through phases. I'm not a good flyer. So I used to drink scotch. Um, and then I gave that up for iPad Scrabble, which carried me for a decade. And yeah. then I discovered that if I took my rough drafts on an airplane on the laptop, an airplane is a wonderful place to edit because you're kind of focused and um, there aren't really many distractions and you can't get up and move around and <laughs> do other things. So um, a lot of the editing of the book took place as flying came back. And, uh, and actually the final edit, I was on a train in Europe when I got the final copy edit. And uh, I think I edited, I, I did the copy edits between Paris and, and uh, Florence on a train with internet connection the whole time. So it was yeah. great. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I can't even imagine a better place to, to have to do your edits. <laughs> it was, you know, the scenery was occasionally distracting, but was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so shadow life, I'm obviously you, you like it enough that you're going to be writing some more. I understand it's the, the first of a planned trilogy. So can you give our listeners an idea of what they can expect in the next two books? There's Maybe. actually two and a half more books. Oh, two and a half. Oh, okay. Know, well, it, and for one, apparently publishers don't like trilogies. Series are okay. So first thing I say to your readers is, you know, well, I would love it if you started and read Shadow Life because it's available in bookstores now. You won't really need to have read it to appreciate the other two novels, which are so they're a series in the sense that um, the two main characters, Matthew and Mary Louise, main characters towards the end, well, Matthew all the way through, and Mary Louise sort of doesn't become a main character in Shadow Life, but does in the next book, which is called Lost City. Although I learned with Shadow Life that publishers ultimately uh, decide the title. So (laughs) Shadow Life was originally 1952. Then it was uh, Broken Moorings. And then it was Ghost Mother. And then I got the catalog and it was Shadow Life. I called the publisher. I I said, I thought it was Ghost Mother. And they said, no, we changed our mind. It's Shadow Life. (laughs) You know, you... You think about it for a bit. You think there's they printed it. There's nothing I can do about it. So get used to it. Mm-hmm. So Lost City takes the journey of Matthew and, and Mary Louise. They come together. It's set significantly in Boston and Cambridge. Um, and their lives take some interesting twists. Um, and I don't want to give it all away. Um, and then the third book is called The Show. And in that book... Mary Louise uh, actually enters American politics. And so it's set 
largely Boston, but with a good deal of Washington uh, in it. And, uh, and climate change becomes an even bigger issue in, in the two next ones than it was in, uh, in, in Shadow Life. And, and actually, I knew nothing about the uh, smoke fog um, in London until I was doing research on 1952, and I stumbled on it. And, and you know, it was a, a terrible event, not that well known outside of uh, some historical circles. And there is, a, there are now a couple of books on it, but they're recent. Um, so it's really uh, an attempt to, to take two characters and see what happens to them as they they go through not only a, you know, a relationship, but also through um, engaging with the world and trying to bring about change in the world. And uh, um, so um, that's, I think, about where, where it is. I'm going to meet with my agent for lunch in two weeks and mm -hmm. see, see her advice on whether to try and sell one, the next one, or two together and, uh, and, and see. And uh, I got very, very lucky on this book. I, my Bev Slocum has been my agent through many books. And when she was satisfied with the manuscript, having sent it back a couple of times for me to revise it with good, good ideas. And uh, she said, now I'm going to send it out. And I, I said, we're going to send it to a whole bunch of publishers. And she said, no, just one. And I said, well, if you send it to one and they don't like it, this could take a long time. She said, no, I, I, I'm going to send it to one. So she sent it to Mark Cote at Cormorant. And he called her back, I think, a week later and said, I, I really like it. Can I talk to Michael? And we had a talk. And he said, I really love your novel. And that's the last nice thing I'm going to say about it. Because my only value to you as an editor is making it better. So just put that in the back of your head because nothing from here on is going to be anything but critical. And he, he was very true. It was very true. He was, uh, but he, he saw things that I wouldn't have seen. So in the original, the version I gave him, the trial was chapter five and there was a lot of wind up to get to it. And his first comment to me was, this book starts with the, you read with Matthew reading the verdict in the trial. That's how it starts. Mm -hmm. And the minute he said it, I thought, oh, that's, ab you know, that's absolutely right. But I, I couldn't see it before. And so I, working with a skilled an editor as Mark was really helpful. Now when I'm writing, I'll, I'll write something, I'll reread a chapter, and I'll think, okay, what would Mark do to this chapter? And I know what he'd do, to it, and then I do it. And then I think, well, I better leave him something in case he's going to do the next one, yeah. something obvious to move around. And, you know, so that's, it, it's been a real uh, journey for me, but I feel better about the writing now. It, it's not easy, but it's, mm -hmm. it's easier than it was at the beginning. And I'm getting, I think, better at it. Well, I think you learn with every book. I mean, you could have written and published 50 books, but you're still going to learn something to take into the next one. And uh, it's an important thing that you bring up too about working with an editor. It's funny that you you said it in, in the way, well, that he said it in the way that he did that, you know, this is a great book and I love it. And that's the last nice thing I'm going to say. And it's funny because it's, it's not really funny, but 
that's basically the way it works. But you have to be able to be open to an editor's feedback because they're not there to make your book worse. They're there to, to make it better. And because you are so close to the story, you can't see all of the things that they are then going to be able to, to look at it and, and find and, and then make better and help you make it better. Yeah, I learned a fantastic amount from him. I didn't really understand the arc of the narrative um, and I didn't understand pacing. Although I'd, I'd been an avid reader. So when I went back and reread a couple of my favorite books, I thought, oh, okay, that's how Le Carre speeds it up. That's how Pat Conroy speeds it up. Mm-hmm. That's how, you know, and, and I thought I love that, that kind of thrill towards the end when everything starts to come together and move quicker and so on. But I actually hadn't internalized that that was something you had to do in a novel or many novels. Um, and so, uh, you know, he was a great teacher and, uh, um, and it, it wasn't like he sat down and he talked to me. He just sent me first three pages of notes from when he first read it. And, and then after, you know, more detailed edits, but um, he, he really taught me a lot. And I'm, I'm, you know, enormously grateful because, I, you know, I'd never have gotten there. I could have worked on it for years without seeing some of the obvious issues that were there. So. Yeah. Yeah. So super important pr- part of the process for sure. Um, and then lastly, for those writers who have experienced writing nonfiction and then wanting to dive into to writing fiction, what would your advice be to them? What would your main piece of advice be? Well, a couple of pieces of advice. One was some advice from my sister, who's done, done a good deal of fiction writing. When you're writing f- fiction, don't read fiction. So, because you'll start to import someone else's voice or ideas. So the best idea is read poetry. Poetry is very sparse. Mm. Poetry is is eloquent. So get a stack of small stack of poetry books, and when you're tired of writing, read poetry because it, it. I found that really helpful. Um, and, and then the second is. Um, understand that, you know, to say you can make things up um, is true, but they have to have a credibility to them. So they can't be, I guess, unless you get into science fiction or something or fantasy, they can't be so fantastic that the reader just goes, well, that, you know, that that's not something that could have happened or would have happened. So you have to sort of stick, in my view, fairly close to, um, you know, you can stretch reality, but you, you can't fa- completely fabricate it. So, um, and um, don't lose heart. I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a challenging thing. It's a hard, hard thing to do. And mm-hmm. I found it far, far harder than writing nonfiction, but then in a way more rewarding. Yeah, you can still be proud of your nonfiction stuff, but it's based on stuff that's already out there and you just have to prove it. But with fiction, those are those are characters that you have created. So to put them out into the world and and have people embrace them in the story that they're in, that's, you know, that's that's something pretty big. Yeah. And then I, I guess the final final thing I'd say is don't be put off by by a bad review. I mean, everybody gets a bad review and um, I, uh, I, it wasn't a, te- it wasn't a terrible review, but I've had one that was, was not as supportive as the others. And the person's criticism was there was too much detail in the book. 
And I felt like writing them a note saying, you should have seen it before Mark Cote took a lot of the detail out because there really was way too much detail. Um, but those things are in some cases a, a question of taste and, and yeah. what you like, how your confidence comes. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, very subjective. You can't please everybody. That's for sure. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Been lovely talking with you and uh, and thank you thanks for listening everyone be sure to tune in this friday for my next ask agent segment this time with avita's creative management literary agent Lori galvin i recently spoke with Lori about agenting in general and then we got to some listener questions. So that is coming up on Friday's bonus session. Until then, keep being badass. <laughs>